ultra Tuscan orange grapefruit. My God, America is imploding. Hey, everybody. It's Fan Zone Debate. It's a title match. We're here. I'm so excited. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. We have a great match for you today. We have the champion, Kirk Kokowski, coming back to try to defend his belt for the second time, I want to say. I want to say the second time. Yes, the second time. Uh, and he's going up against Rue, Rue Moses, uh, who made his way through uh, this little title picture that we had uh, earlier this year. He beat Jacoby, the former champion, and then went on to beat Cameron Holtzman in the contender match, uh, which was another fantastic match. Both fantastic matches and great performances from Rue to get here to play Kirk. Super excited about this. Uh, genuinely very pumped. Brian, you were here for most of those. I think you might have been here for both of those matches. Uh, but And you've been here for some of Kirk's or, or have seen Kirk's. How do you feel about the matchup? Are you excited? I'm not that excited to be here. Um, I've said it before. Rue has got a reputation of being one of the biggest jerks in the community. Uh, and Kirk's debates are kind of boring because Kirk is not the kind of guy who likes to argue about anything ever. So <laughs> that's just not in his nature. So I expect it to be... Uh, Kind of a toned down affair. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Caleb Goho, thank you for oh. being here uh, as the third judge. Caleb, Love it. Um, you actually played Holtzman in this little thing, I so did. you know how, uh, and that was a tough match, so you know how tough it was uh, for Rue to come out on top of that and have an awesome performance yeah, in that sure. match as well. You've been around the debate fan zone nerdgasm when it was for a long time you know all about this one of the best players in the league and now you get to judge uh a match how are you feeling about it uh, i'm feeling good much like bruno we don't talk about nerdgasm uh but uh i i've been up close and personal with amaru it was it was not fun <laughs> that was not a fun debate to be had so i know amaru was really great and i watched kirk all the way through that run and i i would never wish debating Kirk on my worst enemy. Uh, so I think both uh, are in for a good fight. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, start by talking to the competitors. We'll start with the challenger today, Rue. Uh, welcome. Um, I forgot that you and Koho even played before. And, I uh, did. That was I was that the did. Megamind sequel? Match? Yes. It was It was Megamind Monsters vs. Aliens. It was that fucking, one. Yes. Fucking craziness. Uh, so, Rue, uh, we built it up. You're finally here. You're at the title match. You're playing your buddy Kirk. Uh, how are the nerves going into a debate like this versus something like uh, a Cameron or a Coho or a Jacoby? Um, they're a little different. Just only a little different because it's a championship match. Uh, but it's it's usually I you've said it. I've I've only lost to like top rated players and only played top rated players so we're gonna continue this i played kirk before and uh he ended up molly whopping me even though both all of the uh the the match individual matchups were close he still took it so i i expect a much closer match i'm really excited because i i legit am ready for all five of these um and i know kirk is going to be ready for all five of these so i'm i'm really excited to see how this goes awesome all right well let's bring in the champion mr kolkowski kirk Welcome, uh, your third title match in the fan zone debate uh, league. You're going up against your friend Rue. Uh, as he said, you've played him before and you came out on top then. Does that help or does that make it 
harder when you have to come and play him again in a title match ring. Are you excited? Yeah, no, because I know coming back, he's just going to be more ready. This is tough because I love Rue. Uh, Rue is one of my favorite people in this community. He has been pretty much since day one. I'm always rooting for Rue. I always want Rue to have success. Uh, Rue should be a IG champion. That Back to Future question was BS. We all know it. I'm going to say it. Uh, but uh, I always want... So playing against Rue is rough because I got to beat him now. And I don't want to see Rue get beat. But if anybody's going to do it, it's got to be me. Um, but no, I, do, I know he's going to be ready. I'm ready. Um, it's going to be a lot tougher. I know the last time. Um, once you play somebody, you learn their ins and outs, and um, it's not like watching being in the ring with them is, is a completely different thing. So it's going to be a tough match. It's going to be a tough battle, and um, I'm excited for it. Um, I think it's going to be my toughest challenge today. All right. Well, guys, I'm pumped. Like I said, let's get into the match. All right, we are going to get into it. Uh, here's how the show is going to work. Uh, the players have drafted categories, uh, and we gave them questions based on those categories, and they gave us then answers to the questions. So they're going to debate those questions today before our very souls. Uh, they will have one minute to open their argument, followed by a five-minute free-form debate between the two of them, followed by a one-minute closing for each player. Um, at the end of the question, Brian, Coho, and I will write on our handy-dandy boards who we think have won that question. Two out of three wins the point, and because this is a title match, four points will win the game. There are going to be five prepped questions and two bonus speedrun questions should we need them. Gentlemen, do you have any questions before we get started? Nope. Nope. Then your first question was drafted by Mr. Kirk Champion in the category of directors. And the question is, which John Cassavetes film would be best suited for a modern remake? Uh, so Kirk, you drafted this. You get to go first. You have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. I will come in and give you a 10-second warning when the time comes. Go ahead. Two words I locked onto in the question were best suited and modern. Uh, when you remake a movie, especially from a director like Cassavetti, who just made banger after banger and so many classic movies that you might not want to touch at all, uh, you A, have to have a solid, there has to be solid bones behind the movie, or, you know, a solid story, a good movie that people are going to want to watch again, uh, but also you have to have a reason to remake it. And the reason you want to re remake a movie, uh, my choice is A Woman Under the Influence. Uh, it's a great movie, a classic story, a, a, a well-acted uh, fantastic all around, um, but it is from the 1970s. It is very much of its time. Uh, it's a story of a woman, a wife, and a mother uh, suffering from mental illness and what she's going through. Um, and while it is a very good movie, as I said, it is very much of its time. It's a 1970s movie, and uh, the perspectives uh, may not be uh, what we expect from a movie today. And um, what I want to do is I want to take this movie and give it a uh, give it to a female director and expand the uh, the look uh, the, the 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 perspectives of the female character and make her stronger. Time. Okay, I'll move over to Rue. Rue, you have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. Uh, 
Fame, fandom, and the behind the scenes of that fame is something that's always interested audiences. A Star is Born has been remade three times now because that darkness that comes with fame will always be new and relevant for a generation. So when it comes to John Cassavetes, his best suited for a modern remake is opening night. It can go into those pains and pressures of success like alcoholism, mortality, and ego that carries that original essence of the original story. But the themes of fame and fandom will be modernized and it allow the, the plot to be modernized because fame and fandom is completely different now than it is in the 70s. So it's perfectly set up to bring something new to the film and give us a reason to remake it um to talk about on the the fame side with a, a, a woman going through um what what it's like to be aged uh in hollywood what age is like now but on top of that i want to make the key point of the movie that starts everything off the killing of the fan happened later in the movie dealing with social media dealing with twitter youtube Time. all that okay um five minute freeform when one of you starts talking, I will come in to give you a one-minute warning as well as a 10-second warning. And please don't talk over each other, or I, I, I will I will have to come in and yell at you guys. So uh, well, five minutes when one of you starts talking. So so when when it comes to, to Women Under Influence, you're talking about how it's it's going to be modern, and, and I can completely disagree. It won't really add anything to the film. It will look the same. It'll feel the same. If you happen to get people to deliver the same performance, it would be acted the same because mental illness is still mental illness. There's not really things you can update. You can do a different plot line, but it'll end up being either one of two things, a brand new movie that deals with some uh, a couple's marriage uh, that has gone Rye for some reason, like a marriage story or a Malcolm Marie, or you'll do the exact same film, uh, but it won't be called a remake because why do that if you're just going to watch the original? Well, I disagree with that. I mean, you're going to keep the same basic story. You're going to keep the same, hopefully the same performances because the performance is great. What you're going to change is you're going to change the perspective of Mabel. The problem with Woman Under the Influence is Mabel is seen so almost solely as a wife and a mother and the effects that her mental illness has on those people, on her husband and on her kids. What I want to do is I want to take this, I want to make more, Mabel more center of a stage, make her her struggles more about her and her problems and her what she's dealing with as a wife and a mother and not make her a, her husband is almost portrayed as the victim of her illness, mental illness in this. I want to make her more, uh, more of the central character. I want to make it more about holding her husband accountable uh, for what he does. I want to improve the relationships between the women in this movie. And that's why, like I said, I want to give it to a female director. I want to give it to somebody like a Mario Heller or a Maggie Gyllenhaal who dealt with a lot of the same themes in The Lost Daughter, where you could take the same structure, the same basic bare bones, but like I said, modernize it to the kind of, kind of stories we're telling today and uh, make it more uh, uh, more about that. Uh, with your movie, like you said, it is timeless. Uh, the fame thing, the social media thing kind of sounds like a gimmick. Uh, the story is about the theater and about uh, plays. Your movie feels like it's going to be the same thing because theater theater life is the, the, the basics of it. Still kind of the same, still kind of the same issues that people have, same challenges. And but you're going to you're going to change it and make it it sounds like you're making it like a gimmicky like twitter uh social media movie uh and just you know putting that layer on top where the your story is going to stay pretty much the same 
So we're not uh, we're not focusing on the Twitter and the the YouTube and it gimmick. We're using that as a basis of how the interaction with the fan who dies becomes such more built out at the beginning of the movie. Because in in opening night, the the event that kicks off uh, the the main character's descent further descent into alcoholism and fame and everything is when she dies. That's what makes her start thinking about her mortality. And she dies about 10, 15 minutes into the film without any kind of relationship. I want to build up that relationship with the 24-7 access you have, even to theater, to theater, because you see what happens with things like Hamilton and In the Heights, Lin-Manuel Miranda. They all are still under the spotlight. So I want to build up that relationship between the fan and the main woman before the death happens. And then that can continue to kick off everything that goes into having access to somebody like that 24 seven, what's that makes her feel like, what comments are she looking into on top of what does that make her feel like on the stage when it comes to yours, you're going to end up making a different movie because your movie particularly focuses on how it affects the family and how it goes through the family. And if you go completely into more about the less about how it's a wife and a mother, you're focusing more on her story. And again, you're going to make a different, you're going to make a different movie. You're not going to completely focus on that. You're going to lose the aspect of the how a mental illness of one person can affect the family. And I feel like you're going to lose the essence if you want to go that route. I want to keep the keep the family essence, obviously, because it's her family. It's part of her life. But I want to make it more. I want to make her more important in this movie. She's not important enough in this movie. Her husband is borderline abusive. Her kids don't listen to her. Her mother-in-law is just like a, a stereotypical shrew, which is another character I want to change and flesh out some more. But I want to make her pain the central problem One minute. about her family. Um, you're talking about making a completely different movie. You're making a completely different movie because, like you said, the character dies. That character you're talking about dies early on, and it's not just about. It's not about that character. It's about what that character represents. It's about her youth and about everything she's lost, everything she wants to be. It's not about a relationship with that character. You bring that character in and make it about that relationship. You're making a completely different movie. You know, so if it's a, it's about that youth, if it's about that, we don't know. We don't know why that character affects the main the main character in Opening a Night at all. We have no relationship. We have no idea why that kicks her into the descent of madness. Who, when I'm watching Opening the Night, the original, I'm like, well, why does this one person affect her so much? So when you build up that relationship to let the main actress actually see herself in the younger fan, to see what she's going through, to to have that kind of relationship, it it becomes. Uh, even more powerful when she gets that descent of the madness after she dies. And that but that's what it's about. Movie. It's just about it being a faceless person. Time. Okay, uh, Rue, you get to close first. You have one minute when you start talking. I think the one thing about opening night that 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 lessens it is the fact that this fan is a faceless person because it is like why did we do this? We could just go into the the character's descent into alcoholism and it made it want to seem like that 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 kicking off event of her dying was so important. Let's make it more important to make our main character actually feel more. See why she goes more into the descent of madness. Seeing somebody she like is, is having a connection to to make her think about herself, then further the film, the plot of the film, and the impact to her even more as we go into the second half. But when it comes to a, a woman under the influence, she's extremely poignant in the original movie because we see her for all her faults. We see her for absolutely everything and being able to 
to get that tunnel vision into uh, her character, we then get to feel the effect with the family even more. And if you try to modernize that, it really is, again, just mental illness and just um, uh, either an exact copy of how it affects the family or a new movie with new problems with the time. Okay, uh, Kirk, you now have one minute when you start talking. Rue keeps talking about me making a completely new movie, but he's the one really changing his movie up completely. The whole point of the faceless, nameless fan is it it's it, it, it brings up and fillings in her in, in the character that she doesn't understand where he's coming from. In the play, she's dealing with aging. The character she's playing in the play is dealing with aging. She's struggling with her aging. She sees this young person die in front of her, and that's what sparks it off. That's why she goes crazy. She doesn't know this person, uh, but it, it just engenders these fillings. You put a a, a relationship there, you change the whole story, you change the whole dynamic, you take the focus off the main character, which as the movie is, is a complete character study about her uh, focus. With uh, with Woman Under the Influence, with Mabel, I still want to show it through the eyes of the family, but I want to also see it through uh, through Mabel's eyes, I want to see what she's feeling, what she's hurting. Like I said, I want to give it to a female director so you get that perspective. Maybe it doesn't change a lot of big things, but you get little tiny changes where you understand where this woman's coming from as a woman first and her struggles, then as a, a wife, then as a mother, and put the focus on her. Time. Okay. Bring in El Judgeritos. Good start, man. Yeah, I would say so. Did we argue about a woman under the influence before, Kirk? Yes. Thank you. It sounded familiar. Still haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> are we good judges? I yeah. Okay. And actually, for the sake of my sanity, I'm going to switch you two. Okay. Um, I will go first. This was really good. Guys, what the fuck? Um, I don't. It's almost like the title. You sound so surprised. It's almost like it's a title match. Expect you guys to suck. God. Um. So I think the big thing for me, and being the one who wrote the question, was I, I kept going back to Kirk's opening, where he said, um, the words that stuck out were uh, best suited and modern. And I think both of the competitors did a good job of showing what the modern things would be in their new remakes. Um, but the one that kind of did it for me more was Kirk's in the sense that um, looking at it from the female perspective, he was he, he did a good job of explaining to me that like the original is a good movie, but it plays it more into um the husband's issues with it and how this new one would be able to be best suited modern wise by showing it through the um eyes of the protagonist and i also thought that i understood what rue was going for with the social media stuff and i think that's a good angle to add into a story like that but I also feel like that's been done before and that he kind of hit on that himself with A Star is Born even. Um, so I thought both were really, really good, but Kirk is where I'm going. Brian, where are you going and why? You know, I was going to say the exact same thing about how I, I one thing that really, you know, helped me focus was Kirk's uh, statement earlier about the words he'd focus in on being best suited and modern. Um, although I ended up going the other way with uh, Rue. 
Okay. Um, because for me, I mean, Kirk talked about uh, the the things that he would change to give it a little bit more uh, female perspective, things like this, and other things that he would change about it. But I felt that Rue uh, painted a better picture of what he would do to make it to make it feel like uh, how things have changed in modern. Um, uh, one line that stuck out to me is, "You can't update mental illness." I mean, yeah, there's different views on it, that, but it's still a mental illness movie. Whereas fame and fandom, as he stated, have changed so much, and this is like a whole new world, and things are very different than they were back when the movie was made. So there's kind of there is a purpose and a point in remaking it now, and so much has changed in the world of fame and fandom. All right. Uh, Coho, you get to decide this one. Where are you voting and why? Don't like that. Uh, <laughs> especially on this one. Uh, I, think both these, I think both these choices, coming in completely blind on this, were sold really well. Um, I I noticed... I, I did the same thing where I listened to Kirk's opening pretty strongly. Um, and I, I liked how he set the tone of the fight. Um, but I went with Amaru because I think what Amaru did is take what Kirk's tone was and use it against him. Like Brian said, I think he painted a better picture of what the modern changes, how they benefit his more clearly to me. Um, Kirk kind of did a buzzword fight where I kept hearing the same sentence over and over, but I, I didn't really see what he was saying fully. Um, Amaru just painted a better picture for me, so I went with Amaru. Okay. Great um, so we are going to move on to question number two. Uh, Rue with point number one. Um, question number two is going to uh, be in the category of Wizarding World, which was drafted by Rue. The question is, what is the most exciting scene in a Wizarding World film? Rue, you get to start this one off. You have one minute when you start talking. Whether you're a lifelong reader or you've never read a page of Harry Potter, the most exciting part of the entire wizarding world is when the most feared feared wizard of the age finally goes up against the only wizard he ever filled, uh, feared. And in Order of the Phoenix, the Dumbledore-Voldemort duel from front to back is the most exciting two and a half minutes of the entire franchise. When Dumbledore arrives through the fireplace saying, you shouldn't have been here tonight, Tom, the R's are coming, and Voldemort responds, by that time, I'll be gone and you'll be dead. And you immediately lean forward in your seat, excited of what's the come and my goodness do they deliver from the fire snake to the water to the dark energy to the glass explosion to the back and forth of the most powerful magic being um uh of uh, uh, fi finally voldemort uh powerful magic being combated with powerful magic until finally voldemort disappears into the sand that dumbledore transformed from those exploding glass shards your heart is racing until it's over and you're in such awe you don't even realize there's no music the entire time and you immediately say Run that shit back right now. Time. All right. Kirk, you now have one minute when you start talking. The most exciting uh, uh, scene in the Harry Potter franchise is the scene that splits the franchise in half. Everything is what came before, what came after. I went with the return of Voldemort in the Goblet of Fire. Uh, this is the scene that has been built up for three and a half movies now. And we are finally seeing Voldemort come back. Uh, it starts out with the death of a of a Hogwarts student, which first at, at that moment you, all bets are off. At this point, it's kind of, the, the kids have been under the protection of the school and the teachers, and uh, it's kind of you feel like it's been nerfed. A student just is straight up killed instantly. Then you go into Voldemort actually coming back. What they've been talking about, what we've been afraid of. We see him return. We see him building his army back up. We see him in the Death Eaters. And then we have Harry come back and fight Voldemort when he's not ready. We don't know what's going to happen. This scene is keeps you so on the edge of your seat because you don't know 
what's what Harry's going to be able to do against this here. He's stuck there the entire time. He, you know he's not ready for Voldemort yet. He's not ready for the return. It comes out of nowhere and is, without a doubt, the most exciting moment in the Harry Potter franchise. Time. Okay. Five minutes. Both of you are going to be talking about Voldy, 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 Voldy more. Uh, have fun. Rue, I would say the most exciting part of your movie comes before your this scene when you have the fight with the with the order. You have Sirius die. You have all that excitement. Then, when as soon as Dumbledore shows up, the stakes go from here to here, and that's the scene. You say your your heart is racing. That's the, the scene where I catch my breath because after that fight with the Order of the Phoenix, I'm like, okay, Dumbledore's here. Everything's be, be okay. It's a cool moment when he walks out. But he's in control of that fight the entire time. The only thing your scene does is prove to us that Dumbledore has to fight, has to die before the final showdown with Harry. Because if Dumbledore's there, Voldemort's not going to be that much of a threat for Harry. Uh, except for the fact that uh, Voldemort is the most feared person in the entirety of the Wizarding World. You talked about how Voldemort returning has been built up. The duel between Voldemort and uh, and Dumbledore is just as built up with words throughout it because he is literally the one that says the only one Voldemort has feared and being able to see them two actually fight, it's, it's the one everybody's been waiting for. And it's the one readers have been waiting to see how it transforms. For your scene, after Cedric, your scene drags like a Dragon Ball Z episode because there's nothing but talk and talk and talk. So much talk that Voldemort even says uh, he's been talking so much that he forgot was Harry. Harry was there. That's not excitement. That's dread. That's darkness. And that's well acted. But even um, Ray finds himself when he throws in the voice, Crab, Goyle, I can touch you. You start laughing. That's not excitement. Half of your scene isn't exciting at all. And your fight is anticlimactic. Um, uh, beams touching each other. That's not excitement at all. Okay. Just because your scene has a bunch of special effects isn't exciting either. My scene is exciting because, oh my God, what's going to happen? You're on your edge of seat waiting to see that there's there's tension, there's buildup. With your match, with your with your fight, it just, Voldemort does something, D Dumbledore immediately counters. Voldemort does something, Dumbledore immediately counters. It looks good, it looks exciting, but you know Dumbledore's and Like you said, this is the guy Voldemort fears. And we see why, because Dumbledore totally controls that fight. There's no challenge there. My fight is going to be, okay, when this is over, Harry's going to have to fight to get away to either fight Voldemort or get away. And he ends up having to fight him. And, you, and oh my God, what's going? there's actually stakes there because Harry's not ready for this. And it's all built up to there. You see, you see the 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 uh, the ritual that Wormtongue does. You see him kill it. You see him collect these guys. Yeah, there's not high stakes action or high high speed action, but it's very exciting because you're building up to. Oh my God, this is what we've been waiting for. Your scene is, they've talked about how much Voldemort fears Dumbledore, and yeah, now we see why. What control does Dumbledore have on that fight? Every single thing is a back and forth. The, your beam battle, the beam battle at the start of mine has lightning bolts and everything showing that they're equally matched. And then Voldemort takes over with the fire snake, which then you're like, okay, how is he going to counter that? And he, uh, Dumbledore comes back with water and Voldemort gets out of that and everything is just built more and more and more. Nobody's in control. That's why there's the special effect back and forth because you see how powerful both of them are. One and minute. there are three more movies, four more movies left. 
We both know for both of my scenes, both of them are getting away. We know what's happening. So we want the excitement in the action and in actually being built up to what we want delivered. An epic yeah. battle between Voldemort and, and, and Dumbledore. Not talk, 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 beam, 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 beam. My, my, my scene, yeah, we know my guy, we know my guy's going away. The excitement is, oh my God, how is he going to get away from this? With RC, it's like, yeah, he's here. He's, uh, and he's, he's in total control of this fight. He's countering everything Voldemort does. They're going to get away because Dumbledore is complete control here. There's no stakes. It's safe. Like I said, this is where you catch the breather. You see Bellatrix get away. The one thing you want after that fight is you want to see some resolution with Bellatrix. She gets away right away, so that tension completely sucked out of the room. And it's just like you said yourself, it's the guy Voldemort is afraid of, him fighting. You see that fear in him, but he's desperate. He's desperately throwing stuff at Voldemort the entire time, or at Dumbledore the whole time, and Dumbledore just comes. Time. Okay. Um, Kirk, you get to close first. You have one minute when you start talking. There are a lot of ways to divine excitement. One way is a bunch of special effects that really don't mean anything because you know who's winning. You, you, you can tell very easily who's going to win that fight. One way is tension and drama and things building up to a final fight. Uh, Harry's final fight is like really scary because you don't know. I mean, you know he's going to get away, obviously, because it's a Harry Potter story. There's movies left. But how, how is he going to get away is the question there. The excitement of how is he going to escape this fight? How is his first fight with Voldemort going to be? We wait for the three movies. We haven't been waiting for Dumbledore versus Voldemort because we know Voldemort's afraid of Dumbledore and, and Dumbledore can handle him, which we see in that fight. We see the fire, water. We see the glass, sand. Everything is countered. Dumbledore is, Voldemort's not a challenge here. There's no excitement. Like I said, it's a cool character moment. We like, you shouldn't have come here, Tom. That's a cool character moment. But the fight is not exciting because there's no, there's no stakes. The stakes were before that in the uh, fight with the Order and the uh, and the Death Eaters. After that, like I said, you can relax because Dumbledore is here. Everybody's safe. All right, let's move over to Rue for his closing. One minute when you start talking. Kirk said his scene's excitement is how, you're wondering how he gets away and how does he get away? He holds a wand, he breaks it, and then he runs away. There's no excitement in that. You may start at the edge of your seat when Cedric dies, but it drags on and it's anticlimactic. So the entire scene just goes down and down and down because half of the scene is talking and talking and talking. And the other half is an anticlimactic battle with two beams going back and forth. While mine, from the beginning, when Dumbledore walks in, you're like, oh shit, it's about to go down. And it does. It continually builds the excitement because it's the most feared versus who he believes he's most feared. And from the first moment, Voldemort shows, you know what? I'm going to up my magic because I am a match for him. And you see in how Dumbledore swipes Harry away because he's scared for him. You see how Dumbledore has to break out everything that he has just to go up on him. Mine continuously builds and builds and builds on more magic to more powerful magic until the end, until the climactic end, and it's Time. all finished. Fucking kill me. Okay. Um, I hate this. Okay. Um, can I? I'm going to ask the Cody question. What was the question again? <laughs> The wording of the question yeah. is, what is the most exciting scene exciting. in a Wizarding World film? Exciting scene. 
brutal. Okay. Coho, you decided the last one. You get to go first. Sure. Um, yeah, the reason why I needed the phrasing again is because we kind of got lost in the weeds on tension. Um, and it kind of got to this point where we were talking about what made for more tense. And so I had to sift through that and find where the excitement came from. And it was still a really close fight. I think the person who did a better job of explaining why theirs is exciting uh, is Amaru. I think he was able to sort of tell me a little bit more why Dumbledore and Voldemort fighting is a little bit more of an exciting experience than Harry and Voldemort with the take sounds of just Voldemort talking for a long time kind of diffuses the excitement of the initial thing. I thought that was a good takedown. Kirk never really totally bounced back from that. I slightly go with Amaro in a coin toss. I hate this. <laughs> uh, I hate this because I love the Goblet of Fire and I hate the Order of the Phoenix. Hate's a strong word. I don't hate the Order I'm of the Phoenix. I'm with you on that too. It's my least favorite Potter film. Um, and I've been on record saying I think the Dumbledore-Voldemort fight is kind of bad uh, and everybody just fucking loves it. I think it's kind of bad. But based off the argument, I did go with Rue. Um, I thought that Kirk did a good job in his opening. Like, in his opening, I was like, oh, shit. Like, Kirk's coming to play in this question. And he still came to play in the in the rest of it. But I thought Rue did just such a great job of picking at the little things of that scene to point out why it's not as exciting and his closing was really strong saying you want it kirk built up most of his closing on the excitement is how he gets away and when rue explained how he gets away it doesn't sound that exciting uh so i went with rue rue wins the point brian where would you have gone and why um i also actually voted for rue um for me i i i barely remember most of the Harry Potter movies. What little I absorbed when I was in fandom. Once I withdrew, I purged that information because I don't plan to watch them again, really. Um, so I'm going purely by the argument. And one thing I never heard Kirk really come back from was when Rue was talking about how uh, half of his scene just you know, stops into uh, talking. I believe his words were drags, like an episode of Dragon Ball Z. Um, so, and, and I didn't really hear him come back from that, whereas Rue was talking about how his whole scene is building and building and building to a final climax. All right, so uh, Rue is up two uh, to Nada as we get into question three. Can I, can I go grab a drink real quick? Yes. All right, we are going to move on to question number three, which was drafted by Kirk in the category of classics. The question is, who is the best character in a Kurosawa film? Uh, so, Kirk... You get to open this one. You have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. My choice for best character in a Kurosawa film is Kikichiro from Seven Samurai, uh, played brilliantly by Toshiro Mafini, one of his best characters, one of his best performances in any of uh, Kurosawa movies. Uh, this is a character in an assault, obviously an ensemble movie who stands out. Uh, he is a character. Uh, there are two groups of people featured in this movie. Uh, there are the farmers and Samurai the Helping, and there's Samurai themselves. Uh, they are very different. That difference is you know exposed a lot of ways throughout the film. Kichiro is a character who we find out has a foot in both those worlds, 
and um, has a lot of issues with both of those. And uh, he's a very layered character. We find different things out about him. Uh, he's a very funny character. He's the funniest character in the movie. He's the most entertaining. He gives us some of the most action scenes. Um, so on any level you look at, just if you want to see a character who has depth and layers and a lot of uh, th interesting going on, Things you know, things going on behind the uh, behind the in the brain. Uh, there's that, but he's also uh, comedy. He's action, uh, and he makes the movie very fun to watch. So, from all aspects, he's definitely the best character. Time, okay. Uh, we'll move over to Rue. Rue, you have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. The best characters in movies leave an impact an impact on others in the movie, on all those who are watching, whether on and off the screen, and nobody leaves more of an impact on a Kurosawa film than Kanji Watanabe from Ikiru. He's off the screen for the majority of the last third of the film, and you possibly feel his presence even more because of how much depth and reality he is written into his character. When faced with his own mortality, he acts like a real person, not somebody written to be made better. He falls to pieces, he splurges, he feels loneliness, and then ultimately perseveres through all that depression to channel his last days into leaving a legacy to those who don't even know him by name. While most characters will leave us with an uplifting message uh, to end a film, Kanji dies with 40 minutes left to spare to double down on the honest and self-reflective nature of his character to make the message of Akiru impossible to ignore. You just look back at the last days of Kanji Watanabe to know what Akiru means, and as it is, it means to live. Time. Okay, um, five-minute freeform, guys, when one of you starts talking. Two things about Kikuchio. One, you said it. He's written to become a layered character, and he's a very layered character. I love him in the film, but you see all aspects of him, and he comes from two completely different sides of the emotional spectrum. That wild card with the crazy personality that is also angry, that is also sad, and you see his heart and kanji. My character is written with as much depth and as much character arc with one emotional state. And that's so much harder to do when you're just seeing a depressed dude from front to back. Secondly, he's part of an ensemble, Kikuchio is. And unfortunately, you can rewrite Kikuchio and still get Seven Samurai. You cannot rewrite Kanji and get the same movie because Ikiru uh, lives on the weight of Kanji Watanabe's shoulders. Okay, that's cool because that doesn't matter because, you know, we're not talking about what's a better movie or who fits. We're talking about the best character. And my character stands out in his ensemble. Uh, your character, everything you're talking about, um, you're basically making my argument for me. Your, your, your movie, great movie, great message, but it's all about the story. Your character is just there to, for the story to bounce off of. He's, you said it yourself. He's one state, one note. He's sad. He's depressed. And you see other people react to him. You said yourself he's he's dead for the last 40, 45 minutes of the movie. You barely see glimpses of him. And you just hear people talking about him and figuring people out. It makes for a good story, but your character is there. Your character is almost a blank. My character has moments. There's a character. There's scenes in my movies. My character has a scene where you find out he's he comes from the farmers. You see his his he, you know he flips out the samurai because the farmers are bad, but the samurai is mighty, and he struggles with that. He has that scene where he finds the farmer baby. He's like, "This baby is me." He has the same experience, and he has that emotional. Your your character does not have that moment. Your character has an opportunity for those moments, but he just sits there, sad and depressed, puppy that 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 hound dog look, and he it's it's just flat. Your 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 story your character a great story happens to your character. But we're talking about the character itself, and your character itself doesn't do much. There's not much there. There's a lot of story, not a lot of character. 
the story is made by Kanji. And it, the, the moment you want to talk about is the two moments he sings. The one time he sings in the bar and everybody quietly listens to his desperation, listens to his anger, listens to his loneliness. And at the end of the film, on the swing, where he sings the exact same song, almost in the exact same tone. And it's so hard to do that and get hope and get motivation and get desperation. The fact that you're getting one just sadness throughout, but still feeling his loneliness, still feeling his anger, still feeling that desperation, still feeling that motivation, that drive to get that uh, that built. You get that all in one note. Your character, if you rewrite him out of that film, the rest of your film still lives on. You still got Kambe and Katsushiro, the, 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 the master and pupil relationship. You got Katsushiro and Shimo, the love story. You got the relationship between the entire seven and the farmers. And really the turning point of your movie is Kambe. Kambe is really the one that brings them all together. The leader with, with Kikuchio, I've seen him again before, and I've seen and, and you you kind of almost live up to it. With Kanji, if you try to live do the same thing he does, it it does what you say. It falls flat. While in Akiru, it actually is layered in depth. I mean, you keep talking about story. Yes, yeah, Seven Sabra, you can still tell that story about without Kikichiro. Yeah, the story goes on. You take him out and you can still work the story around him. But we're not talking about the story. We're not talking about the movie itself. We're talking about the character. My character starts out as a kind of like a pathetic buffoon. He's he's fake. He, he fakes his way onto the team. They see right through him. He's kind of like the comic relief. He's the clown. And you see him grow. You see his layers. You see his depth. Your character does not have that. Your character has very little arc. Your character is sad, sad, sad. He does his thing. And we don't even get to see his reaction to it because he dies before it happens. We get to hear people talk about it. And like I said, it makes for a good story, but your character is missing. Your character is not there. Your character has that scene. His, his son mistreats him the whole movie. He has that scene where his son comes at him and his son's you know giving him the business, yelling at him, giving him a hard time. And he looks up and you think, oh, this is the moment. He's going to have his moment here. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna express something. And he just looks back down and keeps that same sad look on his face. You're, what you're talking about is story. I'm talking about character. My character is much more interesting. Not only is my character a better written and developed character, my character is almost so, also more entertaining. My character has the, the, the physical performance from Tashiro Mafini. He has the comedy. He has those moments. He connects with the, the farmers. He connects with the children. He has an arc with the one farmer where he meets and he starts off by hating them and berating them, and they become friends. And when that guy dies, he mourns his death. You see, there, my character has like two or three arcs throughout his story, and you see that, and you see that in his performance. You see that in the in the in the in everything else. Your guy, if the story wasn't being told to us, through you literally have a narrative that says, "This is our protagonist. Here's our protagonist. Here's what's happened to our protagonist." If the story was being told to us, we'd have no idea what he was feeling. We're experiencing him through other people. We see Kichiro. The narrator drops halfway through the film, and everything has gone through Kanji's eyes. Okay. Uh, Rue, you get to close your argument first. You have one minute when you start talking. Kirk keeps telling me I'm talking about the story. And no, I'm making the point that characters make your story work. And if a character can be replaced and your story is the same, your character isn't as big of a character, uh, the best character, as you say. You want to say that Kanji doesn't have an arc? Let's say he finds out that he is going to die. You start with the depression and the sadness with that face. Then you get the anger that comes with his his son uh, trying to find his money. Then he goes through, I got to splurge. I got to do all 
all of that. And then he goes to, well, the splurging isn't working. I'm getting really lonely. Let me try to find this relationship with my coworker. And then he says, no, all of that is, is not working for me. All those different things real people do. Let me find a cause. Let me find that cause and put all my motivation, all my desperation, all my hard work into that to finally the same singing he does at the beginning, he does at the end, and you feel hope. And all of that is felt throughout the movie, whether he's in it or he's not, where uh, Cacuccio can be replaced Time. with anybody. All right, Kirk, you have one minute to op or close your argument when you start talking. I want to clarify one thing Rue said. Rue said that the last half of the movie is seen through Kanji's eyes. Kanji, as Rue said, has dead dead for the last 40 minutes, and the movie is, from that point on, is literally just people talking about him. He's not there. As far as all these emotions that you get from Kikuchio, you don't get that. It's other people responding to him. He has very one note. You don't see the anger. You don't see the desperation. It's just a sad puppy dog face the entire movie. And Rue is projecting his emotion as like so many characters. There's the co-workers he deals with, the guy he meets in the bar. There's characters who you have to keep feeding characters to him because he's doing nothing. You have to keep putting people in from you uh, to respond to. Kichiro is a catalyst through a lot of this movie. He is the, like I said, he is the biggest personality. He's the funniest. He's the most entertaining. He has the biggest arc. Yes, there are other characters, other arcs, other things going on. It's an ensemble, but he is the standout character. He is the character you remember. He's the character you're reading for, the character you care about. He connects with the, the samurai, with the farmers, and you see those relationships develop. You see his character develop, and he's the best character. Time. F fucking kill me. Um, okay. <sighs> How are we doing, judges? I'm good. I'm ready to go. Good. Okay. Uh, Brian, you get to start. Uh, yeah, I'll say right in front. I gave this one to Kirk, actually. Um, I feel like he did a, a real good job explaining... Uh, First of all, how his character, uh, what made him interesting, that he was layered, that he had a, a, you know, a foot in, in both worlds of the farmers and the samurai, things like this. Having not seen either, either one of these movies, I am, again, going by just what I'm being told by the, by the debaters here. Um, and so he made that character sound really interesting. And um, he also did a great job countering Rue, talking about, well, there's, the, yeah, there's him, but there's this other character and this, the characters, these other storylines and things. It's like, but that isn't what the story is about. We're just acting about what's the best character and if you were if we we're debating which character is most integral to their movie maybe uh rue would have won but it's just a matter of what's the best character and i think Kirk did a better job all right cool uh yeah i think kirk came out of out of this one just fucking hungry uh i i, I he came out of this like like amaru took his money uh <laughs> I, I think i think this round was like very dominantly like kirk covered all of his bases shut down every defense I, I, I think Kirk came out and just and way late. I, I liked Amaru's argument, but I think Kirk was just like, that's all story, not character, and that was a really good hit. So. Yeah, uh, so I edit these, and obviously when, when somebody says, hey, uh, I got to get a new pen, or hey, can I do something? I add that little like shh. So Kirk said the you'll you'll see it in the video. Kirk said, "Hey, can I go get a glass of water?" And I said, "Sure." And then shh, I add the kush. Uh, I'm pretty sure Kirk went and, like like injected himself with like some sort of like performance enhancing drug. He's like, "I gotta get fucking going. Let's do this." Because he was pissed and he came into this ready to go. I agree with Koho. I think that Amaru did a good job in this, but I think this was one of those cases of you have a player who is so in tune with a specific category 
it's hard to fight against. I think Rue did the best he absolutely could have done with this because he had me, and again, he could have watched the movie. I don't know if he did or didn't, but he had me 100% convinced that he was a Kurosawa expert on both of these movies at least. Uh, whether that's true or not, yet to be seen, but I thought he did a really good job, and I thought Kirk's hits and defenses were just were just perfect in this round. So, uh, clean sweep for Kirk. It is now 2-1 to one in favor of Rue. As we get into the fourth prep question, the category. Oh, I'm very excited for this one. It is Action Adventure, drafted by Mr. Moses. The question is, what is the worst performance in a Transformers movie? Uh, so, Rue, you get to kick this one off. You have one minute when you start talking. And remember, guys, I like these movies. Uh, one minute when you start talking, Rue. When you put into these Michael Bay Transformers movie, you're only successful if you're able to do something with the crap you're given. Shia, to an extent, does it. Kevin Dunn and Julie White excel at it. Shoot, even Megan Fox does a little bit of something with Bay's ridiculousness. But the person who has the absolute worst performance in all of Transformers is Ken Jeong because his, in, in Dark of the Moon because his delivery is incredibly inconsistent with his character. He's supposed to be the comic relief of the film, doing this over-the-top stick uh, that we see him doing Hangover to be a hard-ass conspiracy theorist of everyone, but he tries to do it with a straight face and a serious tone that instead of looking like a comedic crazed loony, which John Malkovich does really well in that film, he comes off as a huge creep. Trying to be dry and straight face is not Ken Jong's strength. And everything he does becomes incredibly ham-fisted. And you're left with eye-roll-inducing, cringiest of the cringe performance, culturally appropriating black women in, in, in a way that is head and shoulders the worst of the entire franchise. Time. Okay. Uh, we'll bring in Kirk. One minute when you start talking. In 2022, we know Anthony Anderson is a very solid actor, very solid comedic, uh, comedic actor. In 2007, not so much. Uh, he was cast in the original Transformers movie, and his performance is atrocious for two reasons. I'll explain why. First, it is very flat. It's very one note. It's very just generic. He is just loud and screaming, and that is all he does. And it, there's not there's no depth or change to it. Uh, it is... Uh, it is just a very flat, boring, unfunny performance. And for a role, it's supposed to be comic relief. Secondly, uh, an actor is supposed to convince you that he is the character he's supposed to be. Uh, the character is sold as one of the foremost computer experts and hackers in the world. And uh, basically, he's playing as, as a buffoon. Uh, you don't get a, any sense of intelligence or maturity or cleverness or wit or creativeness uh, that you would need to be that thing. Uh, there's none of that performance. It is just his stupidity. He plays as an imbecile, uh, a very one-note, unfunny imbecile. Time. Okay. Five-minute freeform when one of you starts talking. Rue, you said that uh, to, the only way you make Transformers work is if you do some of the crap you're given. Anthony Edwards it, it by no means does anything with what he's given. Ken Young, you said he comes off as a creep. That's exactly what he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be a paranoid, freaked-out creep. And he does a great job at it. 
I think when, when I watch this movie, I'm bored the entire time till he shows up because at least he's doing something. He's doing something interesting, which is nothing else going on there. Um, his his interaction with Andrew Daly in the elevator is funny. Uh, his interaction with in the physical comedy he does in the bathroom with Shy is funny. Um, there's actually something to cling on to here with this character. I think he just said, you know what, screw it, I'm going to transform movies. I'm going to go nuts, and he does, and it works. Anthony uh, Anderson, on the other hand, just does nothing. He just screams and yells, Grandma, and that's about it. Anthony Anderson is doing exactly what he is asked with what he is given. The, as I said, these movies suck. So what is written for him is absolutely horrible. When he needs to show that he's the smartest hacker in the world, you look at his face. When he actually needs to hack, he's focused. He's excited. He's believable. In the 2000s, the tropes were most of these um, hackers are loners and weirdos and isolated. And no, he actually juxtaposes Rachel Taylor's more serious role quite perfectly where he's awkward in an outgoing way. His, uh, um, his comic relief goes right hand in hand with her straight lace with his um his his ability to do what he does best you said it if you see blackish if you see barbershop what he does best is he puts up a front and then he quickly breaks he puts up the front in the interrogation room you see these donuts they tell you that, that, that if you eat these donuts you're gonna you're, 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 you're guilty i ate the whole plate and then they come in immediately and he goes she did it. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me, criminal. And he is the one who actually is able to do what he does best while Ken Jong, you say it actually is funny and it, the physical comedy works. No, you're sitting there like you say death. No death in any chance. What death is there when he says, yo, dog, you're up in my shit. When he goes in there and goes uh, deep wang, deep wang, deep wang, and then calls dude Gaylord later with a straight face no hangover over the top he's being straight he's be, he's basically trying to be a black woman and i'm sitting there like dude shut your mouth it is cringy and it is horrible it's but it's something like i said anthony he comes to that movie you're like oh my god okay i get it he's with uh ken young here is almost i'd, I'd say nick cage like in just going over the top and being crazy and insane when he sucks on that juice box and sticks his tongue out that's funny i enjoy that when he when he's when he's fighting with a with when he's trying when he's like oh hammered at least he's doing something like I said there's some physical comedy Anthony Edwards yeah he you say he he looks focused he goes blank he's just like okay now it's time to read the the techno babble script and he does that and then he goes back to screaming it makes no sense I buy you said um you said he's doing what he was asked to do okay he was asked to give a bad performance and he adds nothing to it, it he may not be the only one at fault but it's still a bad performance Ken Yong took the, what he was given and at least does something. He's going for it. It might not be perfect, but there's some energy to it. There's some life to it. There's something different there. It's not just a re, you know a, a standard run-of-the-mill Transformers performance. You get out of Koki kind of performance. You get out of everybody in these movies. He's different. He stands out in this movie. I, I'm glad he's there because it's entertaining, unlike the rest of this film. There's nobody like Anthony Anderson in Transformers the way Anthony Anderson does it, the way he yells, the way he screams. That what is what he is known for, and he does it well. And you say you don't see it. This, after you go the whole grandma scene, they are sitting down in front of the computer, and Rachel Teller says, here's what we have. He puts on his glasses. He says nothing, and he has this huge smile on his face. And you're like, that's the hacker. That's the hacker. This There's something that he knows how to do. But when it comes to Ken Jong, you want him to be over the top, but he isn't. He has a straight face, and he He's trying to do this seriously. So the one time you think he's taking it seriously when Laserbeak um, is about to kill him and, and he's acting scared, you're like, okay, finally. He pulls out two guns and says, who wants some chicken dinner now, bitch, and does a neck roll. You're saying he's doing something? He's doing something that's making me look at him like, dude, 
Stop trying to act like a black woman. You are not it. In the hangover, we get it was a joke. But right now, you are not joking. You are not trying to do that. Yeah, John Malkovich is. John Malkovich is Do you think we're supposed to take that character seriously? He's a ridiculous character, but he's a creepy over the top. You say most hackers are loners and weirdos. He's a loner that works with his lives with his grandmother and admits he's a virgin. He's a very stereotypical hacker in that sense. But you tell me putting on glasses and smiling at the computer screen shows me he's intelligent enough to be the world's greatest hacker? Not at all. I mean, okay, so he, 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 when the script calls for it, he knows how to type in the computer and look and say, oh, hey, and hack into like the, the, the most secret government uh, uh, software there is. It's ridiculous. He, he doesn't pull it off. Ken Young at least is doing what he's supposed to do. Time. Fair. <laughs> okay. Um, so we are going to start with Kirk. Kirk, you get one minute to close your argument when you start talking. Putting on glasses does not make you a uh, is not a performance to make you look smart. Uh, he he is sold to me in that movie as the world's greatest computer hacker. What I get is weirdo living with his grandma, imbecile who has no idea how to do anything. There's no intelligence there that to uh, to provide that. Also, the performance is one note and unfunny. It's just yelling and screaming and ah, oh, she did it, she did ah, oh, it's Wolverine just over and over again. Ken Yong is doing something. I, I, he's supposed to be. Freaked out, paranoid, weirdo creep. I totally get freaked out, weirdo, paranoid creep. And he makes it his own. Is it perfect? Does he do some things that might be off color? And like, eh, yeah, maybe. But at least it's it's something. Like I said, he's 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 putting some life into that performance, some life into that movie, which you don't get from Anthony Edwards. Anthony Edwards is okay. He's just another comic relief, ridiculous guy. Uh, Ken Yong goes over the top. Of course, we're not supposed to take the character seriously. It's supposed to be a ridiculous, funny character, but he plays it serious, but he's still, it's still humor. He's still doing comedy, and it's Time. great. Okay. Uh, Rue, we'll move over to you for your one-minute closing when you start talking. Kirk said it for me. We're going to Transformers and we're not looking into their roles seriously. We're not looking for Anthony Anderson to be the intelligent hacker. We're looking for him to be the comedic relief. So we need something small to show that he loves it. So when he's doing what he's supposed to do, being the loud, talkative dude next to Rachel Taylor's more subdued, more uh, serious character, when he gets to that moment, you just want to see something in his face and his face completely changes. But what Anthony Anderson does is juxtaposed to Rachel Taylor's part, does the loudness that people love from him, puts up the front and immediately breaks. That's what he does best. What we see in Dark of the Moon, the not serious, not serious we're trying to take, we see in John Malkovich earlier, where he's absolutely insane, where he's absolutely ridiculous, and he pulls it off. We get to Ken Jong, and we get to somebody who is inappropriate, who is unfunny, who is cringy, who does neck rolls, who feels like he's from the 1990s saying, hey, girlfriend, all the way through it, and um, I can't stand it. Can't stand it. Strike from the record. Um... Bring in L judges. Um, I'm ready if you guys are. Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah. I go first, I believe, on this one. Mm -hmm. This is question four. Um, I'm going with Kirk Kowalkowski. Um, I went with Kirk because I think, <laughs> honestly, if I'm being completely honest, 
neither of these crossed my mind when I wrote this question. Uh, but they they both did a great job of explaining why they why they're in the running. I think that Kirk overall, I really liked his point about what's written on the page is like they're, they're both being they're both bad performances, but at least Ken Jong is doing something in this role that is enter mildly entertaining and close to what is being asked of him. Whereas Anthony Anderson's role is to come across as like a hacker type computer whiz guy and nothing he's doing is giving that vibe at all. I thought that was a really good point. Um, it, it was really close. If I'm being completely honest, I, I just think I, I leaned a little more Kirk, um, Overall, I thought he just did a better job at like explaining why his character was just overall worse, and at least why Ken Jong was mildly entertaining enough for it. Um, Brian, you go next. Where did you lean and why? Uh, well, first of all, when I first heard the question, these are two of the first ones that came to my mind. Uh, both great choices. Both. No one wanted John Cena. Horrible. It, not compared Almost. to these two. Um, but I, they're both good choices. So it, it was really kind of hard. I was just kind of listening to the debate and it came down to who was spouting off the most stupid lines and stupid moments that these characters had that were so bad that which one made it worse. Um, and I, I know uh, Kirk kept hammering in, uh, you know, at least your character's doing something. Um, but then I think Rue was correct in that, you know, that doing something isn't a better, isn't a good thing if what you're doing is making it even worse. So I ended up voting for Rue. Okay. Uh, so Koho, once again, you get to decide. I hate this. I hate this. Um, I went with Kirk. I think what Kirk did was he was able to convince me that Emmy nominee and star of Best Picture winner, The Departed, Anthony <laughs> Anderson. Damn straight. That it was an that it was an impossible sell that he can play this part. Uh, and that this part is just so perfectly unsuited for him, whereas he sold me more on while what Ken Jong's doing is bad. It's on brand for Ken Jong uh, and what they would ask for him. So I th that's why I lean with Kirk. Neither of you picked Anthony Hopkins, which I think is probably one of the more correct picks. Or Stanley Tucci. There was Stanley Tucci. bit of riches here when it came to choices, guys. Really? Trust me. I love there's... both of their performances, by the way. I'm pretty sure paying Kirk to talk about good things about Ken Jong's performance. <laughs> Uh, that that is that is the thing that that is the move. I'm flat for making him do that. All right, guys. Well, this is a barn burner if I've ever had one. We we are tied two to two going into the fifth prep question. This is nuts. Uh, so we're gonna move on to that fifth prep question. It is in the category of Star Wars. This was drafted by Kirk. Your uh, your question is. Which sequel trilogy character would make the best spinoff movie? Uh, so, Kirk, you get to go first. You have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. My choice for uh, uh, 
sequel character to get a new movie is uh, Lor Santeca, the character played by Max von Sydow at the beginning of Force Awakens. Uh, I wanted to bring somebody in new that we didn't know much about, explore new worlds and new corners of the Star Wars universe. Uh, Lor Santeca has been around since the Clone Wars. Uh, he is an uh, inherent, uh, inherent of the uh, an acolyte of the Church of the Force. Uh, he uh, during the Empire, he served the Church underground. Uh, he worked to save a lot of the artifacts and lore and information about the Jedi uh, that um, the Empire is trying to destroy and suppress. Uh, after uh, the fall of the Empire, he also uh, uh, helped the the New Republic uh, gather information for, for the Jedi about the Force and if, uh, bring that together for Luke Skywalker to help him start his school and also to help establish New Republic. So I wanted a character uh, that bridged that gap between uh, Jedi and Force Awakens. I think it's perfect. It's a very interesting character. Uh, like I said, explores new things that we really haven't seen in the Star Wars movies yet. And um, a lot of directions we can go with this. Um, but also, at its core, the character has a lot new to offer. And like I said, it's somebody who we haven't seen before. So uh, let's give somebody a new chance. Time. Okay. Uh, let's go to Rue. You have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. Finn was one of the most interesting, caring, and cool characters of all the sequel trilogy when Force Awakens released a defecting stormtrooper who seemed to be Force-sensitive, and we still know almost nothing about him because he was sidelined in the last two films. And all that intrigue for such a really cool character doesn't just go away, and that's why he would make the best spinoff movie. We can move actually into new parts of the galaxy, making this a story about finding about himself, bringing in Jana uh, from uh, uh, Rise of Skywalker so you can have that essential Star Wars crew that you always have to have and look into finding and freeing those stormtroopers while exploring Finn's own story with them and his connection to the Force. And we will finally get away from the Skywalker saga and also actually figure out how to go into the new worlds with a new story and see how they're affected by everything that already happened and look, instead of looking back into the stories we've seen over and over again. In addition, John Boyega has already proven to be a star in any chance he gets no matter the movie. Finn is the perfect balance of caring and cool. He can carry action. He can carry comedy. He can carry drama. And you need to fulfill that to, to in order to fill a role that seemed to be a role for the Star Wars ages before it was cut short. Time. Okay. I'm not going to lie to you guys. It's been so long since we drafted this. I forgot who you guys picked, and this is exciting. I'm, I'm pumped. Okay. Uh, Five-minute freeform when one of you starts talking. Uh, yes. Uh, Finn is cool. Finn is caring. Uh, the word you use I disagree with is carry. Uh, he can carry things. I think the problem with Finn is that when you take him away from Han or Poe or especially Ray, he becomes a lot less interesting of a character when you make him the central. I think he starts to kind of fall apart a little bit. Uh, exhibit A would be Canto Blight. When you put make put him first and forefront, you get one of the worst se sequences in the sequel trilogy, um, and you know that that's riding on his shoulders. That's one of the few times where he's not with those other core characters, um, and you see him kind of fall apart. So that's why I don't trust Finn with his movie. I haven't seen enough from that character standalone. I don't think you're going to be able to have him. I don't think the fans will accept it. Uh, uh, Finn without Poe or Ray, and I don't think the character will necessarily carry the movie either. 
Canto Bite is the story, not the character. You give Finn a story we've never seen, and he is going to thrive. We've never seen them go into the Stormtroopers. Everybody wants to know, what is this that the Stormtroopers are defecting? You're giving him him and Jana to go through, to, to go figure that out. You're going to give a story that allows him to thrive. You don't want to, you want to go back. Why? We have television shows for that. You're talking about new worlds. You're going into new worlds with the old story. You want to talk about suppressing the Jedi again? You want to talk about building the new Republic again? We have bridged again. gaps in movies. And if you want to do that, go to the television. We don't need another movie to go back to the stuff we already know about. Your, 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 your story is perfectly suited for TV. I'd love to see this like a five-episode TV show. Explore this. Mine, mine is a movie. We have not explored this. We have Return of the Jedi. We have The Fall of the Empire. And then we have... Force Awakens, where it's the 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 New Order and the Resistance that works for the uh, reserve re, re, works for the Republic, but they're a resistance for the government. It doesn't make any sense. Mine bridges that we need that bridge there. We need a story to bridge that. My character is the perfect one. Is the is the perfect person to do that. He has the foot in the old world. Has a foot in the new world. We're getting away. We're going to have. It's going to be. It'll. It would be like uh, Rogue One, where you have some you know connections to the old story, but it's going to be a completely story, and it's going to fill that gap that we didn't know. My story. My plan is you have him helping establish New Republic. At the same time, you have the remnants of the Empire, and you start to see he's fighting against the the start of the um the rise of the New Order. You're going to see them the the, the origins of Snoke. You're going to see the remnants of the Empire bringing uh, the Empire the Empire first plan for Snoke into, into place and you're going to see we're going to bridge that gap through this character he's uh, like I said he's an acolyte of the Church of the Force Last Jedi it was all about the Force doesn't just belong to the to the Jedi we're going to see the Force from a different perspective uh, with different people and there's a whole new world to explain here that we haven't seen yet um, like I said um, this is the story that not only do we want but we need for Force Awakens and the sequel trilogy really even to make sense the last time we bridged the gap with a movie, we got Solo. The last time we bridged the gap with television shows, we got The Mandalorian, Mandalorian 2, and Mandalorian Season 3 called The Book of Boba Fett, which are all great. Take your story, make it a television show, because Filoni is already killing that. We don't need to go back in another movie. What we need to do is go forward with stories we don't know about. Everybody is trying to figure out, okay, we don't have Stormtrooper stories. Let's expand the universe and go somewhere we, where nothing is coming back to Luke. No matter where you go, Lord Santeca's story has to go back to where Luke is. And if you want to go farther back than that, you want to go back into the Jedi, which we're going to do on Obi-Wan Kenobi. Go to television shows with Finn. We get to see new worlds because we get to go anywhere we want to go, wherever the stormtroopers are defecting. We get to go with him and Jana and figure out about him. Continue to go into the, what the force actually is to see because of his own connection to it. But we don't know anything about him. We don't know anything about these stormtroopers. And it'll allow us to actually build something, which is what Star Wars has not done in years. Okay, the one last the, the last movie that bridged the gap was not Solo. The last movie was a gap is was Rogue One. Rogue One was great. Han Solo was not a, a gap movie. It was just a, a a backstory movie, which is basically what you're telling. Just let's expand on this character and find out everything that makes him mysterious and cool. Let's do a, let's let's explain that so it's not mysterious and cool anymore. And if you think they're going to make a Finn movie without Rey Skywalker, you're out of your mind. That's just not happening. You're, you're, he's always going to be connected to Ray Skywalker, and that's especially if you want to explore the Force. How is he going to go to anybody else to explore his connection to the Force besides Ray? 
So you're not getting away from the Skywalkers. My movie has elements. Yes, my, my, my movie does what Star Wars, does, the new Star Wars does best. It has connections to the old stories, but it creates, it tells you new story. Like I said, my story is necessary because Force Awakens makes no sense. The sequel trilogy makes no sense when you look at the politics and what's going on. My, you need my story for any of that to, to, to mean anything. Right. Um, we bridged the gap in Han's story, so now you want to just bridge a gap in a different story. That's what you want to do. <laughs> just just somebody going the sequel trilogy makes no sense made me <laughs> laugh i'm sorry uh okay um rue you get to close this one first you have one minute when you start talking the problem with the star wars movies is that they keep wanting to go replay 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 we don't need ray anymore nobody likes ray what? Skywalker, the biggest, biggest eye roll in the world. Let's get away from the Skywalkers. Let's get away from all of the, let's get away from all of that war. Let's get away from the Skywalker saga completely and move forward with the new one. You want connections to the past? The reason I'm bringing Jana in is because we're also going to bring Lando in. You saw that last scene in uh, Rise of Skywalker. You're going to bring in the Stormtroopers. You're going to bring in all those stories, whatever worlds they're coming from, the different things that we know nothing about in a completely new world with a character who is charismatic, who can be comedy, who can be action, and an actor who can carry all of that when given the right story. You go to Laura Santucca and you can't do anything but retread. All roads lead back to Luke with Laura Santucca, or you're not making a complete movie, or you're going to other things that is better suited for television, which the Filoni burst has proven works. Time. All right, Kirk, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. Rue wants to move on from the past, but hey, let's move on by the past and bring in Lando. That makes sense. Um, you're not getting away. Finn, the character, is not going to leave Ray behind. Uh, fans will not let Finn leave Ray behind. Ray Skywalker's, whether it was the eye or not, it's canon now. It's there. And that's always going to be Finn's part of Finn's story. Uh, Lor Santeca is a completely new character telling a completely new story. It's necessary to put this in a movie because that's how important it is. Just like Rogue One bridged that gap between uh, uh, up, going up to New Hope. Uh, this bridges the gap between the uh, the original and the sequel trilogy. It's a story we need with a new character, a completely new character we know next to nothing about. Uh, it's with a new a new actor. We'll cast a great new actor, and um, we're going to put it in this. We're, like we're going to tell a story about the the rise of the new public, the seeds of the uh, first order, and what that's all about. We're going to get a little bit of Snoke in there. We're going to get a lot of great stuff. This is a new story. Yes, it is in the same universe, but it's the same story. Luke is not going to be that much of a part of it. He'll be there in the background, but this is a brand new story. Brand new character. Character, strike it from the record. Um, let's bring in the judges. Ooh, co-host ready to go. I'm not. <laughs> okay. Oh, Star Wars, you fickle bitch, you. Why do I love it so much, but I, I hate so much of it? Same. It's it's so weird. Taylor's all this time. Okay, we're good to go? Yeah, I guess. Coho, I believe you are uh, starting this one. I don't know what happened to him in that break, but Kirk just came out of this one, and his argument just had so much more endurance. Um, I think Amaru had a really good start. 
and Kirk's just kept knocking down every shot and finding new ways to keep hitting the uh, the uh, Finn argument, having to tie it back into Ray. It's inevitably going to be a Skywalker saga thing. Tying in Lando kind of was antithetical to something Amaru even brought up earlier in his own argument. Whereas Kirk, especially in that closing, just was able to fully sell what he'd been selling the whole fight in that there's more possibilities to explore the Rogue One solo comparison takedown really worked for me. I went with Kirk. Okay, I'll go next. Um, this was this was weird. Um, I genuinely did not remember either of the picks, and I heard Lor Santeca, and I went, "Huh, I'm gonna really need to hear what the pitch is here." And I liked the pitch, and then I heard Finn, which is more of like a yeah, okay, Finn, one of the main characters. But I really liked Rue's pitch too for what we could see with a with a Finn movie as well. And they both made the yours would be better for a Disney Plus thing. Yours would be better for a Disney Plus thing. But I think what what did it for I thought it was very tit for tat the whole time. They were doing a really good job of taking each other down the whole time. But what really did it for me was at the end. You keep saying you want to get away from the past, but you want to bring in Lando? That fucking killed me. That absolutely was the end for me because it was one of those things. And again, not to like turn it around and like make it about myself, but it's something I used to do all the time was when I was the second closer is listening to what that first person says. And if they bring up something that they didn't bring up the entire match like Rue did and bring up Lando at the last minute, that is fair game for Kirk to absolutely demolish. And I think he did a really – it was really smart to bring that up in his closing. So I I, I give it to Kirk. Uh, he wins the point. Brian, where are you going? Uh, I'm glad that I did not have to uh, affect the outcome because I went back and forth this entire match. Um, I couldn't decide who is better. I mean, but at a, at a glance, I think that it, I honestly am not a big fan, Finn fan. I mean, his character is okay. Um, but, you know, especially when I, I knew Canto Bite was coming up. As soon as I saw him list, I'm like, he's going to mention Canto Bite. And I thought Rue counted that pretty well. That, that was not, yeah. that was yeah. not Finn. That was not, uh, that was not uh, John Boyega. That was the story. Um, that was the problem. Um so I went back and forth. Uh, by the end of it, though, I mean, I was actually leaning towards Kirk's most of the round. I ended up voting for Rue, though, just because when it came down to the end, uh, you know, when Rue's talking about looking forward versus looking back, I am personally more interested in his idea of of not just Finn, but the fact that you're incorporating Finn and Jana and all of these other stormtroopers that have now left to see where they go from here and what's going on. I'm much more interested in seeing that than seeing, oh, where did Lawrence and Tech come from, you know? Yeah. Fair enough. All right. So, uh, Kirk now has the lead. <laughs> this has been fucking nuts, guys. Kirk's now up three to two. Uh, I feel like this is Amaru's curse, is like his matches go this way where it's like someone wins the first two, the next person wins others. It's nuts. Um, we're going to get into the speed round. Here's how this is going to work. Like I said at the top, there are going to be two speed round questions if we need them. If Kirk wins the first speed round question, he will retain the title and uh, win the match. If Rue wins the first speed round question, we will go on to a second one uh, should we need to get there. So uh, the speed round rules are the same for both questions. I am going to say the question. You are then going to dis- uh, 
answer the question. Say your answer aloud. Um, whoever says their answer first will be going first. There's a 45-second opening and a 30-second rebuttal. Do the competitors have any questions about how this is going to work? Nope. You both have been here before. Okay. So because we have two questions, we are going to do one question from Fandom, one question from Warzone. Um, I did randomize to see which would come first. The one that is coming first is from Warzone. And your question is, what is the worst horror remake or reboot of all time? Again, what is the worst horror remake or reboot of all time? The Wicker Man. Okay. Blair Witch. 2016. That absolutely counts. Okay. Uh, so we are going to get started. I am going to take Brian and Coho off screen. I will stay on screen for this to give you guys your warnings. Um, because Rue answered first, he will be going first. Uh, so Rue, you have 45 seconds to open your argument. You can use your time however you want. 45 seconds when you start talking. A lot of people want to make the Wicker Man out to be this just cool, funny, over-the-top thing where it fails miserably in that because the original uh, Wicker Man is a mystery. It's ominous. It's dreamy. And what Nicolas Cage just does is just becomes absurd and bizarre to the point where it doesn't even mirror the Wicker Man at all. There's no more religious motifs from the original one. Uh, it just changes it for some weird battle of the sex thing where Nicolas Cage is karate kicking women throughout the, the uh, scene. And they're really trying to make it a horror, except... The, the, just at every aspect, it completely fails uh, because of his over-the-top yelling and just quotes like, the, of course the bees killing me won't bring back the honey. Every single attempt at them becoming a horror film completely dies and that absurd doesn't work. Time. Kirk, 45 seconds when you start talking. Twenty sixteen's the uh, Blair Witch takes the, the the original movie, which was so atmospheric and so dark and so scary and so just puts you right in there, and it ruins that in so many different ways. They're flying drones around, they're showing the whole forest, and the worst thing it does, the worst thing a horror movie could do is when you have a horror mystery like Blair Witch. The greatest thing about that is why is he standing in the quarantine? You never that just stays with you, and this movie answers that question. And it's aliens, basically. And it just completely destroys the mythos. That's the worst thing you can do as a horror movie is crush your mythos and everything great, all the great mystery that you had. Um, and it, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not scary. Um, it's just weird. And it takes that, that, that all the mystery, everything you loved about the original Blair Witch and just buries it. And that's the worst thing you do. Time. Rue, 30 seconds when you start talking. At least 2016's Blair Witch tries to actually give homage and, and connect to the original story in some way, shape, or form. They went for a swing and they missed, but the, the tone is there. The feel is there. The suspense is there. When it comes to the Blair Witch remake, there is absolutely 
absolutely nothing that connects it to her original. And they took the hugest swing in the exact opposite direction, trying to continue to be horror, but actually becoming so much of a farce and a spoof that it is nowhere near um, and absolutely the worst remake from the original. Time. Kirk, 30 seconds when you start talking. The original Blair Witch is absolutely connected to the original. It's the sibling of the character from the original movie. So they definitely connect. They definitely try to connect. And they, um, they, they, they try to make that connection, but it's not there. Like I said, it just blows everything that was so great about the movie. gives away all the mystery. Um, you want to talk about taking a, swing and a, uh, taking a big swing? Uh, Wicker Man takes a huge swing. Does it divulge from the other movie? Yes, but it's a ton of fun. Everybody remembers this movie. Everybody talks about the it movie. It's Everybody loves it. It's so much fun. In a weird way, yeah, Blair Witch, nobody talks about it. Everybody hates it. It's not time. Good. I'm going to be honest. I didn't, I didn't hate the 2016 Blair Witch movie. Uh, so uh, it's not good. But I, 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 We just talked about this Unlogged It. I like shitty horror movies. Let's, let's be honest. Um, okay. I have to go on my board. I, I always hate doing this because I have to. Now I lost my marker. Okay. Okay. Um, we are. This is question six, I believe. So we are on to Brian as the uh, as the starter here. Yeah. Um. Well, both of you lose points to me just because uh, you, you did the whole, uh, at least they take a swing, even if it was a miss, because I don't, you know, as I talked about in the previous uh, round, uh, if you take a swing and it's horrible, that it's not a swing you should have taken. Um, so I, those kind of cancel each other out. Um, I guess what finally did it for me uh, was Kirk. Um, when at, in his very end of his closing, it was basically saying that, yeah, Wicker Man maybe wasn't a good movie as a horror movie, you know, as far as, you know, being like the original, but at least it had something redeeming about it. It was fun, whereas the other one is just universally kind of eh. Coho. I think every single show we have on this channel has like a very precise round or like it's almost a skill. Uh, I think the speed round is the one for Fan Zone, and I went with Amaru. Uh, I think Amaru absolutely got ahead of where he knew Kirk would be going in the final round and knocked it down early. So when Kirk brought it up at the end, it just didn't hit for me. I don't think that point was, I thought that point was already covered and he didn't really have a stronger comeback in the second round. Whereas Amaru in his first rebuttal just completely tore down Wicker Man and completely explained away why Blair Witch at least tries to attempt to pay homage, which then Kirk sort of, I think he didn't mean to, but sort of accidentally reinforced Amaru's point when he's like, yeah, of course, the main, it ties back to the main character. Uh, so I will Amaru. Okay. <sighs> this is weird. Um, like I said, I, I kind of like the 2016 Blair Witch movie. I also kind of like the Wicker Man. It, it, it's fun. They, they both have redeeming qualities. They're both genuinely great picks. Uh, neither picks were something I would have thought of in this. Uh, so great job. Um, So I think that the point that Rue made about Blair Witch being like Coho said, like like paying homage and at least doing something like 
cool like that that works for me but also kirk's whole thing about like it it's paying homage but also it's like showing like like drones flying in the sky it's like it's like doing the same thing but also like doing it in like a weird way that doesn't make a lot of sense like that worked for me a lot i think what finally did it for me at the end was the point about there are things about the wicker man that are enjoyable and fun that people still talk about today nobody gives a shit about blair witch anymore and i went with kirk kolkowski which means your winner and still fan zone champion of the world, Kirk Kolkowski. Um, this was nutty as fuck. Because, <laughs> like, holy shit. We're six questions in. We're 90 minutes into this thing. This was one of the best debate fan zone title matches we've ever had. One of the best matches we've ever had. This was nuts. Let's start by talking to Rue. Rue, dude, amazing job. Like, amazing job. You came to play out of the gate, winning your opponent's <laughs> category right out of the gate, and then back-to-back getting another point out of there. Absolutely nuts. And splitting the decision a couple times in those last couple points as well. It's really impressive. You did a fantastic job. Um, it's not easy to go up against Kirk. As you know, you've played him twice now, but you did amazing. I, I'm super proud of the way you played. I thought it was awesome watching you get here. It was it was great. Um, how do you feel about the way the match went? You said the word horror, and I said fuck. <laughs> Plain and simple. That's what happened. Um, the, the only other thing is I, I – the only one – that I legit thought I won and lost was Finn. I thought I had that. And the fact that because he said uh, bringing connections, so I wanted to hit that with, well, if you want a connection, you want Lando. And the word Lando kills me. Uh, that's the only one I'm not 100% on, on, on board with. But hey, Kirk still killed the argument in general. Um, uh, I also, on the other hand, I legit thought I was losing the first one at the end. Um, as well so that kind of shows how all the all these matchups that were were crazy good um uh but the second you said it the second i went up 2-0 i was like this is exactly how my other two matches went um so let's see him just barrel through the next ones and hopefully i can get to seven uh but again you said horror and i said fuck and uh i just bullshitted my way through that entire speech 100%. Did no a good idea. job, bullshit. No idea what it's <laughs> But it was fun. It was mad fun. Uh, so, Rue, obviously, we will be having you back if you would like to. Um, you've been in the title match now. You've played a lot of really great players. But is there anybody that, you know, you've seen play that you haven't gotten to play yet that you've just been itching like when you said Holtzman you just were ready for Holtzman is there anybody else that you just kind of want to smack the shit out of a little bit <laughs> I, I do I don't know whether or not the the Will Smith route is the route I want to go but just <laughs> because uh I think uh this is going to be extremely fun uh and again I think I can beat him because I think I can beat anybody and I've watched his match but going up against Robert Kastner that's my guy Ooh. uh 
and and being able to debate Robert would be fun as hell. Um, so I'd love to see him. I'd love to see Robert Kastner in a match before coming back and, and finally getting this W uh, from Kirk. I went from getting knocked out to almost knocking him out. So the next one's a win. That's, that's how it has to go. Well, we're going to see Kastner in this upcoming title picture, but in the following, maybe that's something we can, uh, or we shoot, can figure Kastner out. Kastner takes the belt and I take it from him. That's fine. <laughs> there you go. Fair enough. Rue, really, congratulations. Really great job today. It, it was it was a great match. I'm I'm super happy uh how well you did. It was amazing. So thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Let's bring in the winner, Mr. Kirk. Kirk. Um, I feel like I know you well enough now to know when you get a tiny bit frazzled. And I think it's safe to say you were a little bit frazzled after those first two questions and you came back absolutely murderous. Um, how are you feeling about this match? Yeah. Um, Harry Potter was the one I was the least confident in. So mm -hmm. once I went down to one in that first one, I was like, Oh crap. And um, all respect to Rue. Um, he pushed me to a point where I found a gear. I didn't know I had in this i didn't know if i was going to be able to do it i had to, I, I dig had to dig down and find something because i was honest i said okay i'm down to maybe i can get the speed rounds and maybe i could if i, I could try to take both speed rounds and get there but i was because i knew Rue was going to come in completely ready to, to dominate here and he did great i mean i mean i know i i finished up four now you know four and points there but that was not a blowout by any means because he was on my heels the entire time and he came ready to play. And this is the toughest opponent I ever had. I think this is already match of the year. I don't know mm. what's going to beat it. Um, so all respect to Rue. He did fantastic. Um, I want to play him again, but I also never want to play him again. <laughs> that's that's absolutely fair. Um, so, Kirk, now that you've gotten through another title defense, here are the names that are coming down the pipe uh, towards you in your next title match, which will be at Mayhem of the Multiplex. Uh, number four, Mayhem Four. These are the options that you have coming up. You've got people like Andrew James Barr, Richard Schwartz, Cody Newberry, Robert Kastner, RJ, Caleb Boatman. Those are the people coming at you. Pick two of those names, maybe. Who 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 do you want to see at the end of this? I'd 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 love to see to debate to debate Barr again because that's always fun to fight with him. <laughs> um, but I kind of feel like me versus Cody is just destined to happen. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> um, we'll see what happens. But I think that's the one sooner or later. It, it it can't not happen. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I'm excited to see what happens, Kirk. Congratulations on another victory another win and retaining the belt uh really really tremendous job tonight so uh let's get final thoughts from mr caleb coho i think this is terrific um i think both put up a great fight i also think that that's one of the best comebacks i've ever seen uh mm -hmm. to see kirk basically spot amaru two and win four unanswered points uh in a comeback i think that was a fantastic effort from both um and i i have no doubt we will see amaru right back here again the next opportunity he gets um, but I, I think this entire next picture, uh, has, there's definitely some killers in it. I'll, I'll call the shot. Now I think Cody Kirk is the title match. Uh, I think Cody finally stepping in the fan zone is terrifying and something that we like literally have spent years trying to prevent. Yeah. Um, and so for him to finally be here, I, I feel like it's going to be really fun to see Kirk and Cody go at it at the end, if that does happen. Um, but I think this was for now terrific and definitely match of the year. Yeah. Brian, final thoughts from you. Well, I don't think I want to be there for Kirk versus Cody because that that, that will just very loud. 
that'll just be like, why can't mom and dad just get along? I mean, there's a whole lot of yelling going on. Um, but no, this, I mean, you guys have already said it all. This is great. It was back and forth. I mean, on any one of those, well, I'm, I'm almost all of them. I, I wavered between who to vote for. So it could have gone either way. Um, if anything, Rue can take some consolation knowing the Kirsten you yelled at by Kathy tonight for, you know, waking everybody up while she's trying to sleep. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, this was an amazing title match. I, if you, if you made it this far into the match and you've listened to us ramble on until the end, thank you for watching. Uh, truly means a lot. Uh, thank you to Kirk and Rue for being a part of this and Brian and uh, Coho for judging and Cody behind the scenes who helped me with the questions. So uh, genuinely appreciate it. We have more, uh, we have more coming up. We got those matches. Like I said, we got bar and Richard coming up in a couple weeks and then RJ versus boatman. And then uh, post mayhem, we got some debuts, some more debuts coming in. I'm excited about that. So we got a lot of people wanting to play. We're talking about Cody coming in. In the debut time, Brooklyn Vale's finally going to make his. That's debut. another. That's so, uh, another, another legend. Another, of debate. another legend of debate coming into the fan zone ring. It's going to be really interesting. So, uh, thank you guys so much for watching. We will see you really soon with the next match. Bye bye. Asshole. That's my bad. I was sending a tweet.